Welcome to the Monterey Podcast. For more information, check out our website at montereychurch.com. So that's probably good enough for today. I can probably just sit down and that can be our sermon. Uh, I don't know, Sam, at the end, are we doing like credits to, to give credit to these kiddos who like spent so much thought and energy on this? I hope we do. Um, so uh, today is a little bit different topic. Uh, first, we do want to stop real quickly and, uh, and, uh, and let you know, if you don't know, that one of our uh, um, active retirees ministers, Rodney Rogers, was taken by ambulance to the hospital yesterday. He's in ICU. Uh, Rodney's been going through cancer treatments for uh, quite a while now, and, um, and he's not doing too well today. So if we could stop and uh, lift up he and Deborah and their uh, kiddos, uh, Jason Rogers and Lauren, who help out with the worship ministry. Let's pause and do that. Uh, Father, we thank you so much uh, for the, um, the folks that you have uh, placed among us uh, to lead us and to guide us. And this morning, we just lift up Rodney, lift up Deborah. Pray that you surround them uh, with the peace and comfort only you can give, and uh, we're just so, so grateful uh, for, uh, for all that you do uh, to take care of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the seventh commandment is, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. And before uh, you check out, or before you just uh, start giving the stink eye to somebody around you and say, that doesn't apply to me, encourage us to listen to the Holy Spirit today. Be open-minded because this goes much, much uh, deeper than adultery alone. You shall not commit adultery. Five words. In Hebrew, it's even shorter. Um, While the text in the Ten Commandments uses 55 words to describe the commandment for Sabbath rest, 55 words for Sabbath rest, for this one, it only uses two words. Do not, is one word, commit adultery. Seems pretty cut and dry. So, so how do we speak about this in a way that uh, not only speaks to the, the obvious part of this commandment, but speaks to the heart of what God is trying to tell us through this? First, I'd encourage us to recognize that up to this point, I believe the first six commandments, while they seemed like child's play, seemed like no-brainers, seemed pretty cut and dry, bottom shelf requests from God, um, every time we stop and consider what it is and why it is that God has set these parameters up in our lives, I don't know about you, but, but I'm always convicted there's nothing simple about the Ten Commandments, rules for relationship. There's nothing simple about relationship, and these center on God's essence of being a relational God that at some point expressed themselves in these boundaries, but that begins far before this. So for this one, we obviously recognize this is a much more serious topic in part because it seems to be a much more destructive one, at least the destruction that we can see from the outside. But I propose it's not just a serious topic for married folk, but for all of us, whether uh, unmarried, never married, past married, uh, widowed, uh, for children to understand God's heart. This is a serious topic for all of us. So, adultery is not a topic uh, you typically discuss in polite company, but neither Jesus nor God shied away from it because it needed to be spoken about. So, let's talk about it. Adultery is when a married person participates in voluntary sexual relations 
with someone who is not their spouse. While it's a, a difficult thing to measure in the general population, as, as it should be, one study shows that around 23% of married men and 12% of married women have at some point committed the technical definition of adultery. But let's not get too caught up in the technical, technical definition of adultery. Let the world define it for us and let that alone become our measuring stick. So we, before we stick with that definition, we've probably noticed much of the world doesn't seem to put a lot of stock in infidelity in general, into commitment into covenant. And that's not by any means to say that a lot of the world doesn't put much stock in that. Many do, probably because they've witnessed the power that, that covenant relationship has on us, on our, our minds, on our bodies, on our families, on our communities, and the harm of unfaithfulness. But it's really easy to see when you turn on any screen, any television, go to any movie, that the storyline of adultery has proven to be a winning formula for profits. And before we judge TV and movie industries for that, do they get any profits from us? Are we as prone as the next person to taking these stories and images into our hearts and creating a demand in our culture for this, not just adultery, but this over-sexualized um, way of, of, of seeing and viewing life? So let's not take the world's definitions of sin, but let's also not trust ourselves always to name these lines appropriately. I recently sat at a lunch table with a couple of married men and one married woman, none of, none of whom go to this church, where the woman shared about a friend who was unhappy in her marriage, looking for another man, still currently married, and actually asked in front of me if the two married men sitting with us were interested. Obviously, I'm glad she didn't ask me, but, but my jaw dropped. I was, I was shocked that the words are spoken so carelessly, knowing that all of these people at this table attend a church in this community and claim to be disciples of Jesus. The layers of toxicity just in that moment kind of unhinged me for a while because we know that the pattern of this world, right, the, the world as, as the New Testament speaks of the world, the pattern of this world doesn't understand God's heart. We know that. We know that the first few lines of John chapter 1, that the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness, what? It doesn't understand it. It doesn't recognize it. We know that, and we try not to be surprised by that, but that's just the truth. But when those who claim to be his disciples are also so darkened, it's, it's confounding. And it's no wonder the world sometimes doesn't see the God that we, we pretend to represent. So let's talk about uh, lines today. First, let's kind of back up and begin with uh, that, that original definition of adultery, what the world calls adultery. So you can't see this, but I've got two tape lines uh, up here on the stage. And we'll say this, this line represents marital faithfulness, right? And so if we're being maritally faithful by the technical definition of adultery, we've got a ways to wander, don't we? We still have a green light by the technical definition of adultery. And I'm approaching this other line over here that we'll call adultery, the definition we gave earlier. But I can really be right here. My toes are on the line. I can be right here. And it's not until I step across that I've committed adultery. I've broken the, tenth, the, the seventh commandment. 
Is that right? And so there's an ocean between that point and this point. And my question is, is is that what God intended, even in the seventh commandment, even in the Old Testament? We learn later in uh, Matthew that I'm not sure that was really uh, ever God's heart. And so Jesus takes this in the Sermon on the Mount, and he he blows it open uh, even deeper. So Matthew 5, 27 through 30, uh, you can read with me. Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he goes further. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is a very different line than this line over here. And I believe it's the one God had in mind all the time. So sin doesn't start at this line, does it? Well, where does it start? Where, where, at what point between here and marital faithfulness does it start? And what Jesus tells us is wherever it begins, it doesn't begin with the externals. It doesn't begin by what we can see on the outside, by what we can prove or, you know, prove guilty in court. It begins with the, the hidden parts of us, with the unseen. So marital faithfulness, how far does, do we swim in this ocean before, for us, it becomes too far? And I think something we've all experienced as, as disciples is that if we're, if we're continually seeking the heart of God, that our hearts and our spirits become increasingly sensitive to what sin is and where sin begins in us. And you may not, not be able to say or point or see that I crossed the boundary, but because I have the Holy Spirit in me and because my heart is being conformed to God's heart, I, I'm extremely sensitive much, much earlier to where that line is for me. We had a student uh, when I uh, was doing youth ministry here uh, years ago now, uh, and I, I remember he, he, he struggled with all sorts of, um, well, uh, challenges in life as far as sin goes. And he turned a corner one day, uh, Jesus found him in a way that he had never experienced before, and it broke him. And about three weeks after this had happened, his, his moment of, uh, I'd, I'd say uh, it was a second conversion moment for him. He was about 17 years old, and he was uh, speaking to us, uh, to the youth group upstairs. In tears, he expressed how the things he had once desired for were just hideous to him. He didn't he didn't want to touch him with a 10-foot pole. And in fact, his desire was for the opposite because he, he saw the seeds of sin so clearly when they were planted in his, in his view, in his heart, uh, in his community, that he, had, he wanted nothing to do with them because 
Uh, he used the word hurt. It, it hurts. I can't even explain it. He said it hurts. For, those, for me to let those things in anymore, I want nothing to do with them because it hurts. You may have heard James 1, 13 through 15 being framed as the life cycle of sin. And I just think it's so, uh, so helpful um, when we, we look at our own hearts and understand uh, where these things begin. So let's read that together. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So let's lay out, lay out that life cycle as uh, James speaks it. He says, first there is desire. Desire is born. There is healthy and holy desire. I think desires that align with God's heart. Desire to love for the sake of the other, not a selfish love that I'm seeking to get something out of it. So there's healthy, holy desires, and then there's broken desires. You can't serve two masters. There's two kinds of desires. So desire is born. Desire doesn't have to be bad. But in this, in this uh, life cycle, uh, this is a, a bad, unhealthy, toxic desire that's born. I would say desire is not a sin. Desire is born. But then desire conceives. Conceives what? Conceives some ideas. Um, conceives maybe some roots. And those roots begin to grow. Sin is born in that after that conception happens. Sin is born, then sin matures, and when sin is fully mature, sin gives birth to death, which is such an interesting way for James to say that. What is death? Maybe one way to put it, death is anything that severs. Severs us from God, severs us from others, selfish thoughts and behaviors that sever us from the things God intended to be together or to come together once again and be reconciled. Death is something that severs. So with, with that life cycle and understanding that, that the world's definition of adultery is here, yet adultery can be conceived back here, why does God stop the seventh commandment with, with, with that line only? Why stop at do not commit adultery? Maybe humanity wasn't ready to receive the fullness of that message yet. So God provides these commandments that limited our ability to harm and inflict harm on each other. Waiting for Jesus to show that sin begins in the heart. Maybe this is why Paul says in Romans 7, 7, I wouldn't have known what sin was had it not been for the law. I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. And I, I tend to think in these uh, 10 commandments, in the, in the book of the law, the 613 sins, you know, that are these, these hard boundaries things, uh, once you've crossed this boundary, you have sinned. I tend to think, as God shared these with the Israelites, Surely there were some in that community that, uh, that said, I, th I think he just confirmed in principle what I already knew inside, that these things harm others, that I shouldn't do these things. 
But still, even the most mature of us, don't we still sometimes need to be told what sin is? Because we justify and we rationalize and we allow whatever has been born in us to take over and we forget. So, so the alternative to this line would be what? It would be the heart. That young man that I told you about, for him, that line, we have a, a, just a, an image of these, these two ideas side by side, that line, it just, it just didn't matter anymore. He had no interest in towing that line. His desire for God, his desire for the fruits of the Spirit, the things that God is about, goodness, righteousness, holiness, kept him so far from that line that he was concerned about other things. He'd been transformed, which is exactly what Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, that we stop judging our own behavior by external behaviors, by external appearances, and we develop eyes to see our heart. Jesus takes us from the outside to the inside. For non-married people, I think this is exactly why Jesus, why, why understanding Jesus' teaching on adultery is critical for you as well. You may not believe you're harming anyone now by your lust, but you're practicing how you will or will not feed any number of desires that come your way through all of life. How we handle feeding desires or denying our desires in the daily little things is practice for how we will handle them in the big things and for the rest of our life. We're always practicing. There is, there is no decision too small when it comes to feeding desires or holding them at arm's length that doesn't have an effect on our hearts, on our minds, and on those around us for the rest of our lives. So back to our seventh commandment. Everybody, married people, non-married people, if you believe that the heart is the line versus a line in the sand being a line, some things you would do and wouldn't do. I believe you wouldn't, let, you wouldn't be letting your eyes wander. You wouldn't be letting your eyes wander. Maybe that's screens, maybe that's in the world around you. You would cut off all things that you've experienced lead you to lust. You know by experience what leads you to lust. You, you would reject those things and you would hold them at arm's length. Screens, people, shows, movies. You wouldn't touch pornography with a 10-foot pole because it crosses a line with your spouse and or objectifies others that are made in the image of God and you use them as objects to be exploited for your gain. You'd be able to identify, I appreciate this term, identify micro-cheating. Raise your hand if you've heard the term micro-cheating. You'd, you'd see it in your own mind and heart. Micro-cheating, behaviors that give into your flesh by flirting with the line between faithfulness and unfaithfulness. Maybe it's swiping through online images or profiles just, just for fun, just casually. Maybe it's just flirting with a stranger when you know you're in a committed relationship. Maybe it's texting, crossing just a, just a little boundary with an emotional interest that's not your spouse. Maybe it's becoming too friendly with somebody uh, that you know and rationalizing that away or failing to see that this too is, is being unfaithful. To be clear, men, if you find yourself micro-cheating, you're committing adultery as a disciple of Jesus because Jesus said the line is in your heart. 
And you, you know when you've crossed that heart line and when you've not. Women, if you're micro-cheating, you're committing adultery as a disciple of Jesus. Just because your fantasies are not acted out on doesn't mean you've not drug your vows through the mud. And just because these things happen, to, happen in the closed circuit of your brain doesn't mean, make them less toxic or unable to give birth to death, as James lined out for us. We have to say these things out loud. At some point, we have to say these things out loud or they stay hidden. One of my favorite quotes is, uh, is a slogan from Alcoholics Anonymous, and it, it says, you're only, you're only as sick as the secrets you keep. We're only as sick as the secrets we keep. This is such a powerful truth for all things uh, related to pursuing the heart of God. Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I, I'm just, I, I've, I've come to be convinced this is, this is all of us. This 12-step this thing is the journey that God calls all of us on to look in the mirror and to see ourselves and to surrender and to realize that if we can't hold ourselves wide open in front of others and, and in front of God, we've got work to do. And most of us have work to do, and that's okay. But you can't stay there. You can't keep these secrets and then not eat at you, them not bring this toxicity inside of you and fester and fester. And eventually, and I'd say pretty early on, that begins to, to, to leave your body. It begins to go into the relationships around you. And no matter how much you justify it or think you can control it, you get sicker and sicker until eventually it all comes crashing down. And we realize that long ago we missed the first principle of knowing our hearts. Jesus put the line on our hearts. He says, trust me, it starts there. And if you let that go, the end result is not going to be good. Ephesians 5, uh, 11 through 13 says this, have no fellowship with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. I think of a camera. If you have any photographers in the room, camera works by exposing the film or the sensor to light. And all of a sudden, uh, that, you, uh, that, that image is, is able to be viewed and you can see it. Think about when we uh, go from darkness to light, from a very dark room to a very bright room, doesn't it hurt at first? It hurts when our eyes are exposed to light after we've been hanging out in a dark room. So, but rather expose them for it's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. And this is the verse that I love. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that is illuminated becomes a light itself. Don't miss that last part. Darkness is not dark forever. You were made in the image of God to bear his goodness and his love and his purity and his righteousness to the entire world. There is no amount of darkness that can't be redeemed. And as soon as darkness is exposed to light, what, what happens, does Paul say? Everything that's illuminated becomes a light itself. You become a light again. So there's a couple of directions as we uh, kind of wind towards the end. I thought about going, and I, I think uh, the one here is not it. Um, Sometimes uh, I think we're concerned 
as Christians. Um, sometimes people become non-believers because they, they don't understand the constrictions that God expects of our lives. So maybe adultery is a pretty reasonable constriction because we can see how that harms others. But really, is, is pornography, is, am I really sinning if I'm not bothering anybody? I'm not, I'm not hurting anybody. I, I, re- I recognize I might be hurting myself, but am I really hurting anybody? Really, is it really okay for me not to look at another person just, just with, with a bit of, you know, fill in the blank? Is that really, why does God put this boundary on me? Does he want me to be unhappy? Does he put, is Christianity a straitjacket? What, what is this about? Why does God put these boundaries and constrictions on us? And two examples uh, that, that I want to, uh, or illustrations that um, have been given to me that I, w- I would maybe share as an answer to that. Uh, one of those is um, a fish. Where does a fish live? In the air or in the water? Well, the fish was made for the water. What happens when a fish uh, would like to come up for air, gets jealous of everybody walking around with legs out there, swims up on the beach, beaches himself? That fish will eventually cease to live. But even in the meantime, uh, that fish was not made to be outside of the water. That fish was designed to be within these boundaries of the water. The ocean's big. You can go anywhere you want to, but outside of that ocean, the fish begins to die. God made us to not thrive in every situation. He made us to thrive in right relationship. And so these boundaries he sets up for us, I've said this before, but I would challenge you to look at any list of sins in the Bible and ask yourself, um, well, doesn't this have to do with right relationship? Every sin in the Bible has to do with the right relationship. And, and if, if you're approaching that boundary, it's likely that you're approaching the red zone of harming relationship with others around you or relationship with God. So fish, example number one. Example number two, don't we also put boundaries in our own lives and able to, to, in order to thrive? Have you ever practiced something before? A, a musical instrument, a, a sport, a hobby? Do you work out? Do you choose to put these restrictions in your life, maybe dietary or physical, um, in order to thrive? You may choose to practice something an hour or two a day, and the result is because you chose to implement some self-discipline in your life, um, something new was born, something grew because you chose to eat a certain way or exercise a certain way that you are now able to thrive in ways that you weren't when you were not uh, observing boundaries that were good and reasonable and healthy for your body. Don't we all do that? We know these principles in other parts of life, but sometimes when it comes to sin, again, this is our thought pattern of justifying because it's, it's not what we want. So our desires have to change. And then 2 Corinthians 5 to tie these two illustrations together, says this, the love of God compels us, right? For for Paul and for those in his circles, Paul says, Paul says, what uh, drives me and compels me is the love of Christ to do these things. That Greek word compels is actually the word constrains. 
So if you read it literally, the love of Christ constrains me. Well, that's interesting. What does it mean to be constrained? Well, I choose to set limits and I choose to set boundaries in my life. Maybe that's in marriage. Maybe that's in my behavior and the ways that I treat people. Maybe it's with my money uh, to honor uh, and steward the things that God has given me. But we choose constraints because God said they were good for us. And eventually we come around and say, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe I thrive in these constraints. And so I want to end with uh, sharing with you um, about mine and Deanna's first dog. It'd be an odd place to land. I'm not sharing with you this because uh, our dog is uh, guilty of adultery. In fact, I think as far as we know, uh, she lived a celibate life. Uh, but something that she taught me over, over the years, and if the Spirit is stirring anything in you, um, a, a simple example from uh, one of God's little creatures. One of the qualities I'll most remem- remember about Pina, we've got a picture up here. That, that's not the first one. Let's do the first one. She's uh, in her, in, in her uh, obedient state, she's a very happy, healthy dog. Uh, Jack Russell, uh, Rat Terrier mix. Um, but one of my, okay, you can go to the next one now. One of my favorite qualities about uh, Peanut was, was this. She, was, she had quite a bit of energy. And uh, she had pretty poor impulse control. And so uh, when, she, when she would cross a boundary, whatever that boundary was, uh, she would uh, lower her head in shame. In this moment, she got caught in the act. She's, got, she's covered in trash. <laughs> she, she knows what she did was wrong, sack of trash on the back porch. Um, and I, I opened the door and, uh, and saw her. She lowers her head in shame. And the first thing that she does is walk towards you. She never ran away. First thing she did was walk towards you. Sometimes, even when we didn't know she'd done anything wrong, she'd come crawling in the room and she would have her head lowered in shame. We call her our confessional, our confessional dog uh, because, because, she, because she knew she crossed a boundary, but her instinct, her instinct was to come home, like to come to her safe place. Because she knew, even if there were going to be consequences for her actions, and sometimes there were, that she knew that this was home. This was the right place to be in the arms of her, her mother and her father. Deuteronomy 4, 31 says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget his covenant with you. Even in the Old Testament, God was speaking this, these words a merciful God. He will not leave you. He will not destroy you. So don't let the shame of being drug away by your desires cut you off ever. When we cut ourselves off, we cut off our hearts. We let that wall build between us and God, us and a spouse, us and those around us, and sin has given birth to death. Today, maybe the message is don't let Satan get that final blow God is a merciful God. You're only as sick as the secret you keep. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light in itself. Let's just lift our hearts before God 
as we close today. God, thank you for teaching us what sin is. God, as resistant as uh, each of us are to some of these boundaries uh, that you've spoken over us, God, as we grow and mature in Christ and be transformed more and more into your likeness, God, would you illuminate our hearts so that we no longer even care to toe the line, that sin would hurt, that the seeds of sin would hurt, that you would help us to identify those desires that are so toxic in us. And God, if we're in the midst of those, God, I pray uh, that you would help us uh, to know that you are safe. You're a merciful God. And God, whether or not there are going to be consequences in our life for things that we've chosen, uh, God, would we not keep secrets anymore? God, we lay these things at your feet. Uh, we, we pray they not stay hidden. And we walk into this week, God, with a new and renewed uh, vision for what it is that you're calling us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.